I'm Lone Candle. It's a common conservative claim that Western values are based on Christian Judeo values. Liberty, that we should love everyone, valuing the weak, human rights, the equal dignity of every person, scientific exploration, belief in historical progress, secularism slash the separation of church and state, charity for the poor, continual Reformation, progress, and renewal, that God's laws, rules, morality, and natural law are written on the hearts of men, in our consciences, valuing all human beings, and not just one's local tribe, city, or in-group, that the law nor rulers are independent sources of truth, and universal beliefs. All of these values, beliefs, and attitudes would not be a prominent part of Western culture if not for Christianity. That is the claim. The West was steeped in Christianity. Almost all thought was done through a Christian lens. Ideas in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment built upon centuries of ideas developed in the Middle Ages. So, of course, ideas that became Western values were spoken of in Christian language and used Christian justification. But that doesn't mean Christianity was a cause. Christianity could have been epiphenomenal, meaning it was along for the ride, but had no independent impact. Christianity can be and has been interpreted in a variety of ways and can be used to arrive at a variety of sometimes contradictory conclusions. It may be that other factors led the West to think of and believe in Western values, and Christianity was only used as an intellectual justification because justifications usually use something in the current culture, the current religious beliefs, to argue for conclusions. Thus, simply walking through history and noticing religious justifications isn't sufficient to validate any sort of strong claim about Christianity causing Western values. This claim can be cut a variety of ways, but any version of the claim that's interesting involves causality, meaning Christianity caused the West's current values. That, without Christianity spreading through the West, such values would not have come about. Even that is a somewhat weak and less interesting claim, for it would include less direct effects. It would include Christianity simply acting as a tool to remove Greek, Roman, and Germanic religious beliefs. It would include the independent forces of institutional and power structures that Christianity may have facilitated. It would count any evolution of Christianity facilitating Western values as Christianity itself causing Western values. If Christianity, at a certain point in time, helped spread or create modern Western values, but Christianity at that time was formed by a variety of factors over hundreds of years, maybe the important causes are those other factors, not Christianity itself. Of course, 
the major religion of Western Europe is going to be involved in the development of Western Europe's values. But the strong claim that many people make or imply, and the most interesting claim to think about, is did something fundamental about the core of Christianity cause modern Western values? After researching the subject, my current conclusion is yes, but Christianity's force is contingent, meaning it requires other factors in conjunction to produce such values. Christianity obviously doesn't cause Western values in a simple manner. Looking across space and time, most areas that have Christianity do not have Western values. Orthodox Europe and Russia didn't develop Western values. Neither did Coptic Egypt or Ethiopia. For centuries, Western Europe was thoroughly Christian, but did not have modern Western values. Therefore, if Christianity is an independent cause, it is contingent and works slowly, in the case of Western Europe, over many centuries. I believe that something fundamental about Christianity acted like a seed. Jesus and St. Paul planted the seed, and it required specific circumstances to grow. In time, the seed of Christianity grew to help influence the West into believing its modern values, and eventually these values seemed self-evident and obvious to all born in or heavily influenced by Western culture. The key circumstances were a religion that developed separately from the state, the fall of the Roman Empire that left the church powerful and respected even though most political power was in the hands of barbarian lords, the successful maintenance of this church-state separation during the Middle Ages, and a balance of power in fractionalized post-Reformation Europe that resulted in no one sect having the power to dominate all others. An important founding story of Rome is Roman men defeating a nearby people and taking their women, forcing them to marry Roman men, and making them birth and raise children. This story involving kidnapping and rape was celebrated as part of the early history of Rome. If part of a Christian nation's founding involved such an atrocity, they'd either downplay its importance or lie about it. Why would the Romans see such a story as part of the positive foundation of their identity? Think of gladiatorial games, child abandonment, and the killing of deformed babies. These practices seem like they should be unacceptable, or at least shameful. Yet, the blood of death matches was celebrated and cheered for, and babies being left in the woods was an acceptable practice. If a family felt it couldn't care for the child, they would leave it out somewhere. Such babies would either die or be picked up by someone else, often to be used as slaves. With the coming of Christianity, Christians took such children and raised them. In the Roman world, deformed babies were often just killed. Why was this okay? Because to the Romans, human beings had no intrinsic rights or worth just because they were born. The Romans, like many pre-Christian societies, had ethics based in social hierarchy, duties, and virtue. The idea that every human had equal innate value just for being a human was a non-starter. Those below oneself in the social hierarchy 
were not equals in any sense. They could be more like tools. Slaves had no dignity to be upheld, and could be used for sex like they were adult toys. Moral responsibilities weren't based on humans having value, but socially expected duties. These duties depended on context and on one's social rank. Rather than caring about consequences, Romans focused on the moral quality of the actor, on their virtue. So, ethics wasn't about protecting the meek or following a strict moral code, but about having the qualities of being a good person and acting accordingly. What one should do depended heavily on the situation. The Roman concept of dignity was usually about respect, protections, and rights available for individuals with high status. It was only given to certain persons and was acquired, not inherent. The Stoics did argue for dignity given to every human, but this was not a common view and Stoicism wasn't widely adopted by the masses. A lot of Christian ideas can be found in the Stoics and may have even come from the Stoics, but Stoicism didn't have the powerful stories that Christianity had. Also, elements of Stoic philosophy went against intrinsic human worth for all humans. For the most part, Roman elites had moral worth and something like rights. Roman ethics for them was about using their power justly, not about the moral worth of the weak or poor. For the Greeks and Romans, the focus of their philanthropy was to extend one's own honor, prestige, fame, and status, and the target of such giving wasn't the neediest, but the giver's own people, family, and guests. Much giving had the expectation of a return gift. Generosity was a virtue, but the poor weren't the focus of this virtue. Unlike Christianity, helping the poor wasn't a major part of Greek and Roman religion. Even food given for all wasn't given to help the poor. It was given to all citizens in return for political support. The powerful wanted maximum acknowledgement from those they gave to so that they would support their power. At some point, only the emperor was allowed to give charity in Rome because giving was seen as a political challenge. In the late empire, holding office was seen as a bad thing because you'd be expected to give so much charity. Organized charity that represented a communal obligation toward the needy was not a thing in Greece and Rome. Much of Greek and Roman philosophy, including Stoic philosophy, focused on the natural role of things, including humans. The ruler naturally ruled, and the slave was meant to be a slave. This was the order of things, and obviously a slave is not equal to a ruler or a philosopher. There is nothing wrong with slavery, because slaves are slaves, not fellow humans of equal inherent value. Things are as they should be. The powerful are powerful because of destiny. The strong are strong, the weak are weak. The weak should obey. Greek and Roman philosophy tended to justify inequalities and the lack of moral value given to all humans. Aristotle famously said that some men were naturally free and others were natural slaves. The key difference between the types was the free men's ability of reason, of rational thought, the ability to make deliberative moral judgments. In Rome, reason became associated with the ruling class and the political sphere. Roman extended families were headed by a male father, and he was essentially the dictator of the family. There were no individual rights or dignity. The father had complete control over female and younger male family members. 
For Greeks and Romans, the crucial distinction was not public versus private, but public versus domestic. And in the domestic sphere, the focus was the family, not the individual. Cities were essentially groupings of families. Belonging to a city and belonging to the city's religion were one and the same. A citizen was a man who held the city's religion. Slaves and plebs were not citizens and were not part of the city religion. The plebs gained citizenship later. The legitimacy of the family father went back to pre-Roman religion, religions focused on ancestor worship. The paternal leader maintained the family flame that kept the ancestors alive. The father was like a representative of the dead ancestors. The father was seen less as a legislator and ruler and more as a caretaker who executed and enforced the moral rules written by the ancestors. To some extent, this extended to Roman society at large, where the focus was executing and following the laws rather than reforming the current rules to attain some higher moral ideal. The focus of government was to govern, not pass laws. Roman justice was about staying in accordance with precedence and the constitution of the state, rather than natural rights. Each person had an unwritten contract with other community members, whereby each acted in accordance with prescribed expectations and was treated according to the prescribed expectations in return. However, non-citizens had no value and could be treated how one pleased. One must become a citizen to gain the duties and treatment accorded to one's status. The pre-Roman, pre-Greece family cult grew and expanded. As extended families grew, the eldest male became the leader of a larger cult. Initially, the family was the only social institution. After extended families, people grouped into clans, then tribes. To do this, these groups had to find a common divinity superior to their domestic divinities. Several tribes joined to form cities, creating new joint worship in the process. For larger groupings, gods worked better than ancestor worship. Instead of representing divine ancestors, gods represented forces of nature. As the urban Greeks and Romans came into being, the preceding family-based societies shaped the domestic institutions. In city government, families and tribes were given formal roles. These cities were a confederation of family-based cults, not an association of individuals. Priest roles were government roles, the laws of the city were originally the laws of the religion. For the Romans, and most peoples before Christianity, religion wasn't seen as this separate thing from secular governance. The word religion didn't even mean the same thing. Religion was interwoven with the rituals and beliefs of the people. It wasn't some set of beliefs and practices separate from the group. Every aspect of life had religious meaning and a religious explanation. In early Greek and Roman law, one couldn't sell property because family property was a part of family worship. The family hearth religion focused on the soil and the tombs of the soil. Property belonged to families, not individuals. Property was about continuing family worship. Later, due to social conflicts, citizenship expanded to groups that were not from the founding extended families or tribes. But the basis of that citizenship was still the worship of the city's gods. When Romans fought for what we characterize as rights, they wanted these rights for their group. They didn't appeal to the rights of all men, but for the privileges of their group, for expanding citizenship to them. For example, the famous reformer who wanted more for the plebs, Gaius Gracchus, lost support 
when he proposed giving the rights of Romans to all Italy. Germanic tribes were family-based societies similar to that of which the Greeks and Romans developed from. Rather than pleasure, there was a focus on honor and glory, especially in the later Republic in the Imperial Age. What mattered was the admiration of other citizens, and one gained this by devotion to the public good, the good of society. Roman law was focused on the public good rather than individual private good. However, a rules-based order that ideally applied the rule of law instead of might makes right was an important foundation for the development of modern liberal democracies. The Romans' use of careful judicial proceedings was built upon by modern countries. In the age of empires, the unequal social hierarchy had to focus beyond just the city. This weakened the city citizens' hold on lesser people. Philosophers focused more on absolute commands and rules. There was more interest in the absolute and its mystery, which led to more mystery cults and an interest in Judaism. With a larger focus on the empire rather than the city, an appeal to something external was more intuitive. Rather than living by one's nature, you submit to gain knowledge. You can't understand God's will and the mysteries of the absolute. You must obey, then you understand. This was in tension with the superiority of a city's citizens. <coughs> Jesus, Paul, and their message came into this Roman world. Christianity brought with it Jewish scripture and ideas in the form of the Old Testament. The book of Genesis says we were made in God's image. This line has been used to justify humanity's difference from other creatures, human dignity, and that we are each independent moral agents with reason and choice. It has been argued that we were created in the image of God, spiritually, morally, and intellectually. By having some of His special qualities, we mirror God's divinity. We have intellect and freedom like God has intellect and freedom. And our reason and freedom can help us determine right from wrong. Some say the image of God means we are God's representatives on earth. Ancient empires would use the image of the ruler to represent him around the empire. Likewise, we are like God's representative and have dominion over nature. We should act as much as possible in a way that embodies the image of God. Because each of us bears the image of God, we are to some extent sacred. We have independent worth and should be respected. To treat a human, including oneself, like dirt, is to treat God like dirt. God is a part of us, and therefore each of us has dignity and rights. Human dignity is given by God and reflects His dignity. With the Ten Commandments, God put emphasis on moral principles. Other gods placed a premium on beauty or knowledge or power. But with Ten Commandments, God revealed His identity, calling His people to live, not as slaves, but men and women brought closer to Him, to share in His nature. God loved His chosen people. God gave a whole bunch of rules, but this was not supposed to represent tyranny, but devotion. This covenant with God was a great honor. 
Other gods didn't enter a treaty with their worshippers. The covenant allowed Jews to maintain and renew their relationship with God because this covenant was written down and they could read it. The covenant gave the Jews legislation directly authored by God. While other kings and emperors had divine power to make laws, Jewish kings only had divine power to implement and enforce the legislation authored by God. Jesus was a craftsman. He had no prestige or social standing. He died in a way meant to be utterly humiliating. To treat such a man as the one true God was in complete contrast to the Romans who worshipped those with power and who accepted the superiority of those with prestige. To worship such a lowly man who died was incredibly strange and different. But it also implied something about the nature of human beings. If a lowly, humiliated carpenter could be the son of God, this implied that the superior weren't necessarily those with wealth, power, and high social standing. This implied that maybe we all matter, whatever our position in society. Jesus taught the value of the weak and poor. Rather than dedicating his life toward power, he dedicated his life to helping the poor and downtrodden. This implies value for those Jesus helped and goes against the idea of worshiping the powerful. This showed God identified with humanity's suffering and revealed the unjustness of the Roman social hierarchy. He also said to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. This implies that there is a difference between rulers and spiritual belief. It implies a distinction and separation between the sacred and the secular. Jesus wasn't political and was killed by government, so his story lends itself toward liberty and less governmental power. More than that, Jesus can be read as not being here to talk politics at all, but to talk about God's kingdom in a different world. With there being one God and Jesus as his only son sacrificing himself for humanity, no political leader could claim to be incarnated with the divine. Without being able to make such an expansive claim, this implied political liberty. For no person could be God except Jesus. Rulers needed another way to justify authority. Paul traveled preaching. He told his followers that they are not of the place they are. Not Jews either, but people of Christ. He had to do this because by not believing in local deities, that were a source of identity for local people, his followers were ostracizing themselves, so he gave them a new identity. Paul taught that God is in your heart, not on a tablet or in ink. He didn't set steadfast rules because he didn't claim to speak the word of God. He recognized that people had the ability to determine right and wrong. Here, he was pointing to conscience and natural law. Paul appears to have been influenced by the Stoic concept of conscience. Historian Tom Holland goes further and says, quote, Paul, at the heart of his gospel, was enshrining the Stoic concept of conscience. Paul was knowledgeable about both Greek philosophy and Jewish theology. He combined the two in his preaching and in what became parts of the New Testament. The idea of the law of God being written on the hearts of men was an idea influenced by both Jewish Pharisees and the Stoics. 
but was nevertheless foreign to both. Paul mentioned freedom a lot. He spoke of us all being made in God's image, of Jesus dying equally for all, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Jesus. Paul combined the Greek speculations about a universal human nature with Judaism's focus on obeying a divine will. For Paul, the divine will is not simply an external coercive will. Jesus' sacrifice is the symbol and mechanism that allows God's Spirit in all of us, so we have individual agency. Faith is an individual act. There isn't natural inequality because we have an inner connection to the divine, a link between divine will and human agency. This gives us moral equality, individual will, and individual conscience. When human actions were understood as governed by social categories, those social roles determined your action. Paul instead says Christ provides the standard to govern individual action. Conventional social roles become secondary to freedom of conscience and union with each other in Jesus through Jesus and love. As children of God, we are autonomous agents with the capacity to think and choose. Paul emphasized the importance of love. He advocated a freedom of conscience, but also moral obligations from recognizing that all humans are children of God. We are all a part of God and should treat our bodies as temples. So, slaves, barbarians, and women could not just be used for sex on demand like the Romans did. Hierarchies make less sense when we are all God's children. However, Paul also said we have our own gifts and should use them so that those good at serving should serve. He didn't take the implications of equality all the way. He still supported a power hierarchy. Paul said humans have access to the deepest of reality as individuals, creating a foundation for the individual. The new basis for association was voluntary. Human agency acquired independence and dignity. He said that through Christ, we can reach for moral universality. We are sons of God through faith. We can move beyond rule following and don't have to blindly follow Jewish law. Paul wasn't focused on creating governments in this world. He thought Jesus would come back soon. So he wanted to create as many churches as possible before the shortly coming day when Jesus came back. Paul emphasized the lowliness of Jesus by saying that Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand miraculous signs. Christians preach their leader crucified. The leader is a victim rather than a victorious conqueror. Paul described humans as pre-social, each responsible for their actions to God. When every individual is equal before God and is made in God's image, the moral intuition is not to see one's community as simply your tribe or ethnic group, but as people voluntarily associating under God. Christian heroes weren't great warriors who won victories with power but martyrs who died humbly in service of God. In Christian Rome, leaders needed to respond to the society's Christian-induced concern for the poor by adjusting their rhetoric to show that they shared this concern. If morality comes from a one true God, then how do rulers have the right to rule? Their actions can now be judged by a moral code interpreted by religion. With Jesus, the moral agency of the individual became more important than the family. Individuals could be immortal, 
not just families. Christ lived in individuals. Paul advocated a mystical union with Christ. Faith in Jesus bounds you with Him, and you gain rationality through God. One does not have to be an elite or an aristocrat to have rationality. Paul went against natural inequality and instead advocated equality. God gives the foundation for human action. Human action is the focus, rather than immutable order or fate. Early Christian thinkers mixed Judaism, Greek philosophy, Jesus, and Paul. This created the expectation that the justification of Christian doctrines should involve high philosophy, although theology still required bewilderment and awe. These thinkers disagreed on a lot, but generally saw that conscience came from the assumption of moral equality. God created us with equality, rationality, and free will. Therefore, we should be free and responsible for an area of choices. For conscience to mean anything, there must be a sphere where people can decide their own actions. So early on, Christians saw a role for government and a role for freedom. They believed religion must be practiced freely and not coerced. According to Christian thinkers, the logical following of individual conscience is a separation of temporal and spiritual power, a separation of church and state. In the first few centuries, the church developed hierarchy, then became an official religion of the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, the church used rhetoric of love for the poor rather than social superiority. This helped spread different moral norms. Instead of uniting people with common rituals, Constantine united them with a common belief. He gathered learned churchmen in the Council of Nicaea to unify that belief. An imperial duty was to promote and practice the correct beliefs, so theologians became important advisors. In many ways, Christianity worked slowly, but it quickly destroyed the ancient family as a cult of religious association. By moving religious authority from the father to a priesthood, Christianity removed the basis of the family cult. Near the end of the Roman Empire, the law moved in a Christian direction. Fatherly power over sons was reduced. Criminals could no longer be branded on the face because man is made in God's image. It was made easier to free slaves. Only a few Christians were against slavery, but Christian ideas did challenge the harshness of it. Christians thought they could help slaves' souls without ending slavery itself. Ancient Greek and Roman authority was based on natural superiority. Christian authority was more focused on bottom-up support from the people and shared faith. Even though aristocrats still existed, they believed in an equality through Christ. Clergy's role undermined the traditional urban government. Heredity claims to urban political positions were weakened as the clergy took some of them over and their office holding was not officially justified by birth. The clergy tended to value the interest of the entire city, not just that of the privileged citizen class. Urban populaces chose bishops by acclamation. It was like an election, although deference played an important role. Bishops fought to end old practices. They were against the mixing of pagan and Christian beliefs and practices. Monasteries and martyrs aided Christianity in spreading the importance of the individual. Monasteries provided an example of societies based on individual and voluntary association. They weren't based on certain people-born lords and others-born workers, 
Monasteries were groups of individuals who decided themselves to join the monastery and work diligently for it. Martyrs could be seen as an inspiring example of individualism. The ideas of liberty and religious toleration were clearly established in Christian writing before the Enlightenment. Christianity set ideas about rights in motion, and they were expanded in time, including by Enlightenment thinkers, who built directly on thoughts developed during previous ages. Today, sometimes we exaggerate the extent that Enlightenment ideas were completely new. Moral equality led to equal liberty. If we all have equal moral standing, then shouldn't we have an area where our choices are respected? Theologians argued that we have an intrinsic moral nature. We all have a natural right that allows human freedom. There is a force in every human, put there by nature, that pushes us to do good. This power implies an area of individual liberty. If law applies to all souls equally, then it needs to be systematic and develop general rules. That is what canon law tried to do. The study of law in the Middle Ages became the combination of studying Roman law and church canon law. For some Stoics, man had a force that gave him the ability to find the objective natural law of the universe. Church canonists changed objective natural law to a faculty in humans based in reason and free will that allowed them to see right and wrong. The canonists advanced beyond the Stoics by establishing a foundation for natural rights. So, we went from natural law to individual rights. Because these rights were from natural law, they superseded the law of any nation and did not base their power on state law. These rights could not be taken by human rulers. By the early 1100s, natural rights were inscribed in canon law. The church's legal system made the secular spiritual distinction explicit. Secularism identified a sphere where individual conscience and choice should reign supreme and are protected by law. It is a separation of the private from the public. By purging Roman law of hierarchical assumptions and treating all as equals under God and under the church, canon law laid the groundwork for the development of modern Western values. People could still have roles in society, but their independent soul, or them as an individual, remained. One argument for how Christianity, and monotheism in general, helps lead to modern values is that its approach to God's transcendence makes the divine so otherworldly that humans become more independent. God is so out there, and separate, and different, that we can remove the supernatural and the sacred from mundane things and start treating much of our universe scientifically. This was also applied to the state and the individual. Rather than a community infused with the supernatural, ruling itself legitimately through those supernatural powers, leaders ruled their subjects directly. If the divine can only be incarnated in Jesus, then no king can be a god, and the state must justify its rule in some other way. The state rules by the will of individuals. Social contract theory comes from this. Authority eventually had to become bottom-up rather than heaven-down. One of the earliest versions of a contract model of the relationship between ruler and ruled started in the late 1000s. The focus on the soul or individual conscience implied an element of choice in political obligation. 
in the 1000s and beyond, kings were no longer priest kings. They still used religious symbolism, but they didn't have a direct connection to God. A dualist system won over royal theocracy. The church was an independent spiritual order, and the papacy recognized a separate secular jurisdiction. Morals no longer came from the strength and glory of the city. Government was subordinated to fundamental morals. Rather than power resting on lords and extended families, it rested on morals focused on individual souls. And who did the church say had the final word on this morality? And who was in charge of souls? The church. The church created itself as a self-contained legal order, and the papacy as the supreme source and final judge. Church authority comes from God-given responsibility for the care of souls. Church law merged the Roman law conception of imperium, also called supreme legal authority, with care of souls. Consequently, the unit of subjection to the legal order was the individual, each individual soul. Pope Gregory sought a moral supervision of rulers through his authority over the consciences of their subjects. The church becoming a unified legal system was not complete until the 1200s. From the 1000s through 1300s, the papal reach grew, and more formal legal ways displaced less rational ways to judge cases. Many legal changes moved laws and procedures in a modern direction. Soon, secular rulers also saw themselves as sovereign in their own spheres. The church provided an example of a unified legal system based on the equal subjection of individuals. This started the idea of the modern state. The idea of ruling over souls slash people directly facilitated the end of feudalism as the state and kings wanted to rule their subjects directly, like the church did. Seeing the successful centralization of the church, rulers sought to emulate it with formal laws and lawyers. The administration slash bureaucracy of the state formed and professionalized on the lines of the church. Kings created written records and consistency in administration. They avoided making feudal magnates, agents of local government, developed new law codes, and insisted that royal law superseded feudal or customary law. Kings claimed powers of justice and arbitration to help extend their authority. There was royal patronage of law schools that taught civil and canon law, but not feudal or customary law. As the king-to-subject relationship grew, it changed the nature of kingship. It became more territorial. Instead of kings being the king of the Franks, a king became the king of France. The king ruled over all the individuals in a defined territory. In the church's canon law, they wanted there to be a moral or natural law above human laws, and therefore the spiritual sphere has independence from the secular. Public power cannot overrule conscience. The church represented claims of conscience. Christian liberty was joined with the liberty of the church. However, these principles would later be molded to challenge the church itself. The focus on conscience allowed more questioning and facilitated freedom in philosophy. Christian ideas about progress, natural law, individual rights, freedom, and conscience eventually outgrew Christianity, leading to the questioning of Christianity. The West developed to this outcome, the individual as the organizing social role, a distinction between public and private spheres, and a strong role of conscience and choice. Individual moral agency is acknowledged 
and protected, with equality before the law and enforceable basic rights. With the rise of states, we see society as an association of individuals. The Protestant Reformation helped move the separation of the secular forward. They had a greater focus on individual salvation and the separation of church and state roles. While the Protestant Reformation was very important, the idea of reforming the church wasn't out of the blue. The church had earlier reform movements. The Protestant Reformation was following in the footsteps of these. The Enlightenment also walked this path of renewal, purification, removing constrictions, and upending old ways with new ones. Ancient cities grew as societies joined by common sacred beliefs. With the Dark Ages, cities declined, but they came back. Unlike ancient cities, the sacred questions were answered. The church already existed and was in charge of that sphere. So new city governments focused on their own affairs within the limits of Christian beliefs. Towns and boroughs became the first secular governments not based on religious-like ideas about lordship and extended families. They accepted that their residents had an underlying equality. City charters declared brotherhood and equality. The ancient city made no such declarations. Cities were an association of individuals and did not lead religious rights or create religious rules. Church influence on city development was indirect. Christian beliefs facilitated the new city dynamic. The extent of city autonomy from lords was a battle that happened over time, but they had an amount of independence to govern their own affairs and with limited tax liability. Islamic cities were not legally constituted. European cities had charters. These charters had constitutional features, but were not as extensive as modern constitutions. They acknowledged that authority rested in the assembly of all citizens, and recognized formal equality for citizens. With basic Christian ideas, one thing led to another. The church used them to fight for separate spheres, kings used these ideas to defeat feudalism in the long run, and cities used them to be independent and base their charters on the equality of citizens. In cities, the protection of civil rights and the formalization of things like trials appear to have been influenced by canon law. The legal innovations allowed the birth of the middle class, originally consisting of artisans and merchants. Later, lawyers, wealthy bankers, physicians, and scholars entered this class and it became more self-conscious. To summarize the effects of Christianity. From its founding, Christianity had ideas in contrast to what came before, and these ideas planted the seeds that later grew into modern liberal values.